1: When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him.
0: The Gospel of John, Chapter 2, Verses 9-11, through 11, New Living Translation
1: But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples, who distributed it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward the disciples picked up twelve baskets of leftovers. About five thousand men were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children.
0: The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 17 through 21. New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time horticulturist. At least that's how he thinks about it. He moves the silk plants around in the lobby. We used to have real plants, but we quickly realized that providing care for indoor plants was not part of his wheelhouse. We did save almost all of them, and when we did, some people said that they had a renewed faith in miracles, which is a perfect lead-in for today's discussion. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue the discussion we began last time about the miracles in the Bible. In our last episode, we began talking about the purpose for authentic biblical miracles with a particular focus on two specific periods of clustered miraculous activity in the Old Testament the miracles that occurred in the time of Moses, and those during the ministries of Elijah and Elijah. R.D., would you care to give us a brief overview of what we learned?
2: I'd love to. In our initial discussion about miracles, about how authentic biblical miracles are used in the Bible, we covered a few key points. One of the key points is that while the Bible does use the word miracles, What we call miracles are more often in the Bible called signs and wonders. And that terminology is very significant, actually, because the miracles that occur in the Bible are never just random events. Instead, they actually signify something. They are actually signs of something. They are signs of authentic messengers from God. And often they are signs of key points of time during the overall history of redemption. Biblical miracles, which again are more often called signs and wonders, are important events because they tell us something important. For instance, biblical miracles are used to validate messengers of God, such as Moses or Elijah. When Moses or Elijah or Elijah's protege, Elisha, when they were able to perform supernatural miracles before the people that they were ministering to, that demonstrated to the people in a graphic and dramatic way that those prophets, those people, were authentic messengers of God. And as I have briefly alluded to earlier, miracles in the Bible seem to be clustered during very specific time periods that have a particular or a specific importance to redemptive history. So, for instance, during the time of Moses, when there was a proliferation of miracles, the time of Moses marked the time that God began moving his people out of Egypt after a period of over 400 years and back to the homeland that God had promised would belong to Abraham and his descendants. There was another cluster of miracles during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And that cluster of miracles marked the end of the unified nation of Israel. Because just before they ministered, the unified nation of Israel, the unified kingdom, had split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, which again were marked by a cluster of miracles, was actually a period that was marking the end of the previously unified nation. And unfortunately, their ministries also marked the beginning of Israel's descent into idolatry, and that descent into idolatry only actually got worse through time.
0: And sadly, that period of idolatrous worship ended very badly for the Jewish people. The kingdom, which was initially unified under David and Solomon, split into the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Israel was conquered by the Assyrians around 722 BC and disappeared from the pages of history. Judah lasted for another 150 years or so until it was conquered by the Babylonians and its people went into exile in Babylon for a period of 70 years. But true to his word, God ultimately brought out a surviving remnant and returned them to the promised land. God's dealing with his nation during the time of the Old Testament is a great reminder that God will always accomplish anything that he ordains. One reason that he can do this is because he is sovereign over all affairs of men and nations. So, before we go much further in today's discussion, let's listen to an excerpt from Crystal Sea Book's Purposeful Prayers that meditates on the fact that our God is an infinite God.
3: The Only Worthy Object of Prayer Many people spend too little time considering the nature of the object of their prayers. Even the most beautiful prayer prayed by the sincerest person to an unworthy object would be a futile prayer. The Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is filled with admonitions about the futility of praying to inanimate objects that have neither eyes to see, ears to hear, nor the power to move. Because prayer is communion with God and therefore part of worship, it would be an act of idolatry to direct prayer to an unworthy object. The first of the Ten Commandments, You shall have no other gods before me, is number one for a reason. Most Christians, if asked, would probably say that the object of their prayers is God. Unfortunately, in this day of postmodern ethical relativism and spiritual ambiguity, The terms God and even Jesus have lost much of their historical meaning. In some cases, even when authentic believers speak about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have spent little time meditating on the true nature and attributes of the triune God as revealed in scripture. A limited knowledge of the nature of the object of their prayers impedes their ability to achieve intimacy with the one to whom they are praying and inhibits their ability to pray effectively. God has revealed Himself to humanity through His creation and His Word, and we are commanded, not entreated, to worship and pray to Him in spirit and in truth. We need to re-establish a firm connection with the God who authored Scripture, framed the heavens, molded man, and granted us an audience to His presence. Having a biblically informed concept of God and His attributes elevates our appreciation of Him and improves the quality of our prayers to Him.
0: Well, by listening to that excerpt, you can see how God can shepherd the unfolding of all human history to bring about His intended purposes. Of course, one purpose that God is bringing about is salvation for His people. And that's one of the big reasons we wanted to have this discussion about miracles, because God used miracles in the Bible as one part of His overall plan of redemption.
2: Exactly right. And as we mentioned earlier, and as we saw in our first episode of Anchored by Truth when we were talking about miracles, God used specific clusters of miracles during the times of Moses and during the times of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, not only to authenticate them as genuine messengers of God, but it also marked their ministries as being important turning points in redemptive history.
0: Well... Before we move on to beginning our discussion of miracles in the New Testament, perhaps we should clarify something. The Old Testament does record miracles that occurred outside the specific ministries of Moses, Elijah, and Elijah. I mean, the book of Daniel records the famous episode of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerging unscathed after Nebuchadnezzar tossed them into a fiery furnace.
2: Now, you're absolutely correct that there are records of miracles in the Old Testament outside of the specific ministries of Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, such as the one that you referred to when Daniel's friends were tossed into a fiery furnace by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was extremely upset with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they refused to bow to the great golden statue that he had set up because that would have been a idolatrous form of worship to them. The only God that they could bow to, obviously, was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the real God of the Bible. So because they refused to bow, Nebuchadnezzar threw them into a furnace that, according to Scripture, had been heated seven times hotter than usual. But even though Nebuchadnezzar's men, who threw them into the furnace, were actually killed themselves by the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego eventually came out of the furnace, and the Bible says that they were not only unharmed, But nothing even happened to their clothing. There wasn't even the smell of smoke on them. But that miracle, just like the other miracles that are recorded in the Old Testament, tended to be singular or one-time events, as opposed to the cluster or proliferation of miracles that occurred with Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. And also, there are significant differences in how those miracles are described or portrayed by the Bible. Such as? Well... When Moses, Elijah, or Elisha performed their miracles, and of course they weren't the ones doing the miracles. We have to be clear about that. Those individuals, those people, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, they weren't performing the miracles. God was performing the miracles, but he was using them as his agents. And the descriptions in the Bible of the miracles that occurred during their lives made it very clear that, that those people were well aware that they were being used as God's agent. They never took credit for the miraculous things that were occurring, even though they were well aware that they were acting as God's agent in bringing those about. And of course, in our day and time, we remember that an agent is one who acts on the behalf of another person or entity. So Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, when they did miracles, were just acting as God's agent. And they were well aware that they were agents and they were active agents. So, for instance, when Elijah was confronting the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, it is very clear that Elijah was an active participant in the miracle. I mean, Elijah was the one who issued the challenge to the prophets of Baal to begin with. Elijah actually harassed the prophets of Baal while they were attempting to call down fire from heaven to consume their sacrifice. And when it became Elijah's turn to call down fire, Before Elijah called down the fire, he repaired the altar on which his sacrifice was placed by using stones, and he repaired the altar of God in the sight of all the people. And then Elijah dug a trench around the whole altar and called for the people to fill the trench with water. And then, of course, in the end of that particular episode, Elijah called down the fire out of heaven to consume the sacrifice that had been placed on the altar. So with Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, you see a very clear awareness by all of those prophets that God was performing the miracles through them and that they were being used actively as God's agent.
0: But you don't see that same level of personal agency with Joshua and the walls of Jericho falling down. Joshua gave the people the instructions the Lord had given him, but it was the combined shout of the people that initiated the collapse of the walls. And when Daniel's friends went into the fire and came out unharmed, Daniel wasn't even around. I see what you're getting at. There are 17 books in the Bible that comprise the prophets, but there is hardly any mention of miracles in them. Naturally, we're distinguishing here between the prophecy made by the prophets and miracles. The prophets' prophecies certainly demonstrated they were receiving supernatural inspiration from the Lord. But the supernatural activity that produced the prophecies was different from the type of supernatural activity that accompanied, say, Elijah's resurrection of the widow of Zarephath's son, described in 1 Kings chapter 17. In some cases, centuries elapsed between a prophecy being given and it being fulfilled. In the case of miracles performed by Moses, Elijah, and Elijah, the results of the supernatural activity were immediately visible.
2: Exactly. And you see those same characteristics of immediacy and personal agency present when Jesus performed his miracles, and also when the apostles carried on the pattern of performing miracles that was established by Jesus. Jesus and the apostles were always well aware that they were performing miracles, so they weren't sort of just random events that happened to appear. They were well aware that they were performing miracles, or more properly, signs and wonders. Now, one of the things about Jesus' performance of miracles that is different from every other person in the Bible who is involved in a miracle, when Jesus performed his miracles, he was very straightforwardly claiming that the miracles that he performed were specific evidence that he was, who he claimed to be, God incarnate. So Jesus' miracles, Jesus in his performance of the miracles, can be and must be distinguished from all other people in the Bible who perform miracles because Jesus claimed that his miracles were evidence or a demonstration of the fact that he was actually God, God incarnate in a human body.
0: Well, that raises a very tricky point. Jesus claimed that his miracles demonstrated that he was God incarnate couldn't someone then claim that, for instance, Moses was also similar to Jesus in that way?
2: Well, that's why it's so important to study the various biblical accounts, not just of miracles, but the various biblical accounts of everything, very carefully. Because when you do that, you can easily distinguish Moses, Elijah, and Elisha from Jesus, because none of those three ever claimed to be God. All three of them made it very plain that they knew that they were just serving God as God's representative. But it was very plain by what they told the people that they knew that that was all that they were doing. They were just serving as God's messenger and bringing God's message. Moses, Elijah, and Elisha knew that they were the servants and not the master. By contrast, Jesus made it very plain when he performed miracles that those miracles were evidence of him being God, but because he often claimed for himself prerogatives that belong only to God, such as forgiving sins, he claimed those prerogatives at the same time that he was performing the miracles.
0: Such is the instance of the miracle that Jesus performed that's described in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Luke. Some men tried to bring a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. Quote, so they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd, right in front of Jesus. The New Living Translation in verses 20 through 25 says, quote, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law said to themselves, Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up. Pick up your mat and go home and immediately as everyone watched the man jumped up picked up his mat and went home praising god
2: yes every person who performed signs and wonders in the bible miracles other than jesus whether it was a person in the old testament or the new testament made it very plain that they were messengers sent by god to bring god's word to the people none of them ever claimed to be god But Jesus did claim to be God. Jesus made repeated statements to the effect that he was God. For instance, just in the book of John alone, there are the very famous seven I am statements, such as the I am statement that Jesus made in John 11.25 before he raised Lazarus from the dead. In that particular verse, John 11.25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, Even after dying, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Now, that's a pretty astounding claim for a person, for a human being to make. He's claiming that he has the power over life and death. Well, that's clearly a power that belongs only to God. And in that very same way, in each of the I Am statements, Jesus was identifying himself with God in a way that was very unique and different from every other person in the Bible. And that's one of the reasons that it's so important that we focus on the details of these miracle events in the Bible so that we can understand what those miraculous events mean in terms of the overall unfolding of redemptive history. Now, if you remember back to our two opening scriptures today, we heard about two of Jesus' other notable miracles. First, turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And second, we heard an account of Jesus feeding the multitude. But let's look at the other details that surround those particular miracles for just a second. Before Jesus turned the water into the wine, and he was doing so at a request from his mother, Jesus said to his mother that his time had not yet come. So Jesus was saying to his mother, look, I know who I am, and I know what I've come to do. It's just that my time has not yet started to reveal that I am the Messiah. Now, he went on and performed the miracle that his mother requested, and why he did that is the subject of some debate among scholars. But the relevant point about this is that Jesus knew, before he performed the miracle, Jesus knew who he was, and he knew that there was a specific time that would come when he would be revealed as the Messiah. Now, in the account of feeding the multitude, which is portrayed in John chapter 6, before he actually feeds the multitude, John, as he's writing his gospel, notes that when Jesus asked Philip, another disciple, about feeding the crowd, Jesus was testing Philip because Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Jesus already knew he was going to multiply the loaves and the fishes. Jesus knew that he could perform miracles. So Jesus, when he did his miracles, displayed a very clear understanding that he knew who he was and why he had come. So it's very easy to see when you look at the detailed accounts of the miracles that Jesus used his miracles to prove that he was God. All of the other miracle workers in the Bible used miracles to demonstrate that they had a message from God.
0: Is it fair to say that every other person who performed miracles in the Bible besides Jesus used their testimony to point to Jesus?
2: Absolutely. The Old Testament prophets, both those who performed miracles and those who didn't, pointed forward to Jesus. They didn't know his name at the time, but they knew that they were pointing to the coming of a Messiah at some point in the future. Now, Peter... Paul and the other apostles who performed miracles after the resurrection were pointing backward to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection provided the evidence that he was the Messiah.
0: And you have pointed out that the miracles that the apostles performed actually fulfilled a prophecy made by Jesus. In John fourteen twelve, Jesus said, quote, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, So Jesus actually prophesied that his followers, his disciples, would do greater works than he did. Now most conservative commentators believe that the greater refers to the number of works, not the character or the quality of the works. Is that correct?
2: Yes. And you can see the accuracy of Jesus' prophecy that his followers would perform greater works throughout the book of Acts. Now, in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we mentioned a particular event that's related in Acts chapter 5, where people would bring sick and demon-afflicted people to Jerusalem in the hopes that just Peter's shadow would fall on them. And when Peter's shadow did fall on them, the people were healed. Now, if you can walk by and your shadow falling on somebody causes them to be healed of a disease or driving a demon out, that's pretty much a clear sign that the person whose shadow is doing that is different, is unusual. And so, in demonstrating that Peter was different and unusual, that caused the people to listen more closely to Peter's message. And Peter's message was all about Jesus being the Messiah, about his life, death, and resurrection, proving that he was the Messiah. Now, there's another observation that's sort of similar to that in chapter 19 of Acts.
0: Chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, where it says, quote, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them, unquote.
2: Yes. And Peter and Paul weren't the only disciples of Jesus that performed miracles during the apostolic era, which was the early part of the formation of the Christian church. The book of Acts says that Stephen and Philip also performed signs and wonders. And when Paul, during the time when he was still called Saul, was blinded by God on the road to Damascus, a believer named Ananias healed Saul's blindness. And so, there were many other miracles that were described in the book of Acts, but often those other miracles were not attributed to the agency of a particular person, such as the time at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit's appearance gave the disciples to speak foreign languages that they had never learned. The relevant point is that there was another period when there was a proliferation of miracles. So it's important to note that this proliferation of miracles was authenticating the fact that the people who were talking about Jesus were authentic messengers of God, and also that God was doing something remarkable during the unfolding of redemptive history.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to stop for today and to introduce the idea that next time we're going to look more closely at some other important topics related to miracles, such as whether miracles violate natural law, and whether they are still occurring today. As we always do, we want to close with prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our friends, because it's important for all of us to have friends, and it's important for us to value our friends enough to always pray for their needs
4: a prayer for friends. Heavenly Lord and Holy Father, we bless you and exalt you as we bow down before you. We are grateful that we can come into your presence and find a willing and loving Master. You are the one who framed the mountains and carved out the oceans. How much more, then, can you assist your children? Lord, we thank you for the blessings of having friends. We believe that it is you who brings people into our lives who are a source of joy and fulfillment to us. We pray that you would help us to provide the same blessings to others. We thank you that you have helped us to meet people who help us to go beyond ourselves, friends whose hearts are loving and generous toward us and who have steadfast spirits that keep them with us, even during the difficult times. We pray that you would bless our friends with health, strength, and prosperity. We ask that you would look into the deepest recesses of their hearts as only you can, and find the secret hopes and dreams there. As it conforms to your will, fulfill their desires and bring them more completely into your presence. Seek out those who do not yet embrace your name and your Son, and bring them into communion with you. Let them know that only friendships grounded in you will last for eternity, and that joy unspeakable awaits those who put on Christ and then fellowship in his kingdom. Help us to be sensitive to the dings and dents of life that afflict others. And help us to speak kind and encouraging words especially when troubles are weighing them down. Help us to take action where such action will relieve pain or provide comfort. But help us also to know the boundaries that we should not cross. As Christ did, let us build relationships among the people we treasure and help us always to seek the good of others, even when we must set some of our own desires aside. It is your good pleasure to provide good gifts to us all, and it is impossible that we should ever bless others without being blessed by you. Bring harmony and peace to our relationships. Help us for our part to not injure or grieve others. Help us to be peacemakers using the example that your Son gave to us. Forgive us and help us to forgive others that all will know that we are the possession of your Son. In Christ's name we pray and offer praise. Amen. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're, we're not famous, but our, famous, but our boss is. is.